already becoming clear how Labour intends to bat away calls for greater spending on reforms like increasing job seeker above the poverty line or building publicly owned renewable energy. The answer every time is there's a trillion dollars of government debt and Labour needs to be responsible, cutting back on waste and managing the economy. Never mind that the Albanese government is committing to a massive military build-up, spearheaded by the $170 billion nuclear-powered submarines project, or the Stage 3 tax cuts, which will deliver $15.7 billion in their first year alone, overwhelmingly to the rich. All the public money going to waste building a gas power plant at Curry Curry in New South Wales. And in the background is the looming possibility of a recession, with the US economy struggling and China recording its lowest growth rates in decades. To find out why Labour is responding like this now, and to see how they are likely to respond if recession hits, it's useful to look at how Labour responded to the much bigger challenge of the Great Depression that began in 1929. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm or Melbourne. The period in Australian history we're looking at, roughly bracketed by the years 1929 and 1932, was shaped by four major events. The first was the election of the Scullin Labour government. The second was the onset of the Depression. The third was the election of the Lang Labour government in New South Wales and the explosion of radicalisation among workers there. And the fourth was the consolidation of the counter-revolution in the Soviet Union, with power now firmly in the hands of Stalin at the head of the bureaucracy. So let's start with the first element. James Scullin led Labour to a historic victory in 1929, in October. Parliament then was much smaller, just 74 seats compared to 151 today. Labour won 46 of those 74 seats, and the icing on the cake was seeing the Conservative Prime Minister Stanley Bruce lose his seat, something that wasn't to happen again until John Howard was booted out in 2007. The context was a slowing of the economy, the first sign of the depression to come, and under Bruce the bosses had a free hand to slash and burn to salvage their profits. Industrial judges appointed by him handed down an award cutting timber workers' wages while increasing their working hours. Coal mining bosses and the Hunter Valley in New South Wales slashed workers' wages and when they went on strike, the bosses locked them out. Labour campaigned around the promise that, if elected, it would have the miners back at work within two weeks on the workers' terms. Now, Scullin was no radical, but by today's standards, he and Labour spoke a much more left-wing language. Scullin had opposed conscription during the First World War, and with the fighting over, he told the Victorian Labour Conference in 1919 that revolutionary change was inevitable. And in 1921, he declared at the Federal Labour Conference that he was in favour of, quotes, nationalisation with a view to socialisation. And socialisation was a term that was commonly used in Labour circles 
to mean some kind of workers' control or socialism. But for Scullin, revolution would come through the ballot box. And as the ACTU historian Liam Byrne has written, he drew the line explicitly between actions required in the present and hopes for the future, explaining that socialisation was ultimate and not immediate. And of course for him and for Labour, economic radicalism went hand in hand with commitment to a white Australia. So he spoke a left-wing language but had no intention of following through in any structural and meaningful way. Scullin took office on the 22nd of October and just two days later on the 24th, the Wall Street Stock Exchange fell an initial 11% and kept on falling. Capitalism had gone into a very public crisis. Scullin responded by betraying the New South Wales miners and the best he offered was to mediate in talks but the mine owners had no intention of letting the workers back without a pay cut. And for all his earlier talk about nationalisation, once Prime Minister, Scullin refused to consider nationalising the mines, calling such a move unconstitutional. By contrast, the New South Wales Nationalist Government, or Conservative Government, was less timid. They were prepared to reopen the mines by force, to install a scab workforce and break the union. And on December the 16th, they sent police in against the strikers at the Rothbury Colliery, killing a worker, 28-year-old Norman Brown. The mine workers were forced to accept the wage cuts. But much worse was to come. The depression had a savage impact on the Australian economy and on workers, and it was much, much worse than anything we experienced in the first year of the pandemic, and there were none of the cushioning programmes from government, such as JobKeeper and temporarily doubling JobSeeker. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Prices for Australian exports fell 45% and the economy contracted. By the middle of 1931, for example, about one-third of union members in Sydney were unemployed, and most workers at that time were union members, so we can take one-third unemployment as pretty much the rule of thumb across the country. There was no equivalent to JobSeeker. Many relied on charity and the suffering was terrible. The Sydney Morning Herald reported, and I quote, Lurking in the alley, a man pushes his stunted child forward to offer onion pickles. Some just stand and look with hunger in their eyes. When the sun dips, the still lower orders rake the rubbish bins. Scullin, with a big parliamentary majority and the support of Labour and Union members, could have acted to defend living standards, to make the rich, not the poor, take the burden of the crisis. He did nothing of the kind. Instead of taking advice from the working class movement, he listened to the governor of the Commonwealth Bank, which was then effectively a federal state bank, who said that spending had to be cut. And Scullin then invited a Bank of England delegation led by Sir Otto Niemeyer to visit Australia. Niemeyer's advice was even more blunt. According to him, Australia was living beyond its means and had to cut government spending so that it could meet repayments to British banks. Scullin cut funding for public works and that threw another 100,000 workers onto the scrap heap. And with his blessing, the arbitration court cut all wages by 10%. In 1931, Scullin and the Premiers came up with the so-called Premiers Plan, 
and government spending was cut by 20%. And it's not surprising that in December that year, 1931, workers took their revenge on a Labour government that had abandoned them. Scullin was turfed out, with Labour's primary vote of 48.8% in 1929 dropping to 37.6%. And incidentally, it's a sign of Labour's decline today that Albanese actually won in May with just 32.58%, pretty much the lowest vote since that period. We often think that Labour is devoted to winning votes, even if it means dumping policies or principles. And that's generally true. Labour is an electoral party and the ambition to win a majority government is the glue that unites its members left and right. If capitalism is expanding, and especially if, in addition, there's pressure from below from union members and campaigns, Labour is prepared to deliver positive reforms. But what the Scullin government showed was that if the system is in trouble, Labour will prioritise defending capitalism over gaining votes. As one observer wrote, again I'm quoting, reduction in old age pensions, soldiers' pensions, and similar social benefits was a fatal program for a Labour government. But Mr Scullin, long since surrendered to the idea of saving the nation at all hazards, barely hesitated. We can have no expectation that a government led by Albanese and with Chalmers as treasurer would be any different. Defence of jobs and welfare will need to come from struggle from below. And while Scullin was managing the economy for the bankers and big business, there was indeed massive resistance among ordinary people. I think the first thing to note is that resistance was overwhelmingly political rather than industrial. After the defeat of the miners and with the massive rise of unemployment, workers who still had jobs were not confident to strike or impose bans. So, for instance, in Victoria in 1929, there were almost 1.3 million strike days. In 1930, there were just 7,744. And it would not be until the strike by coal miners in Wonthaggy in South Gippsland in Victoria in 1934 that confidence began to recover. But the sense that capitalism was in a crisis and that it was the system to blame was widespread. In 1930, Labour won the New South Wales election and Jack Lang became Premier. Now, Lang was a former real estate agent who had risen through his role in municipal politics in the new western suburbs of Sydney. He was no radical, but he controlled the New South Wales Labour Party machine and had a nose for populist messaging. With the depression biting, he recast himself as a fiery radical who won a mass following, speaking to open-air crowds of up to 100,000. And his popularity was based on him proposing an alternative to the Premier's plan. The Lang plan included refusing to pay interest on loans to overseas banks and cutting the interest owed by Australian governments on debts within Australia to 3%. And it was wildly popular, but it brought him onto a collision course with the establishment. And in May 1932, Lang was sacked by the Governor of New South Wales, the only state Premier to ever be kicked out in such a way. But despite his supposedly left-wing credentials and mass following, Lang wasn't the real opposition to Scullin's cruel austerity drive. This came instead from the New South Wales Labour Party's socialisation units, 
which won the support of many thousands for radical socialist demands, for what was called socialism in our time. Now, I don't have the time to deal with the story in detail, but the units were set up in 1930 to make propaganda for the party's socialisation objective, the idea of nationalisation with workers' control. As the depression bit, the units really took off across Sydney and Newcastle. They had more members than the ALP itself, and they organised around the idea that capitalism was in terminal crisis and the need for socialism was urgent and immediate. The units became a powerful party within a party. For the briefest of time, they won the New South Wales Labour Party to an official position of adopting an immediate three-year plan for socialism. But the units had one major failing. Their members and leaders, however strong their left-wing language and their genuine commitment to socialist transformation, were still trapped in the idea that this fight for socialism could only come about through a Labour government that was committed to socialist policies. They didn't see their priority as fomenting struggle, let alone insurrection. Instead, they understood their own role as making propaganda amongst workers, and in particular party members, to win over the party. Now, Lang had no such outcome in mind. He couldn't reject the units head-on. They were too popular and too powerful. So he cynically adopted some of their language. And as one historian put it, he decided to ride the socialist tiger until it collapsed in exhaustion, which it did by 1933, when Lang and the party machine reasserted their their influence and their power and wound up the units. This was a massive squandering of an upswelling of anti-capitalist radicalisation, and it could have ended differently if the small revolutionary party in Australia at the time, the Communist Party, had worked with members of the socialisation units, winning them into United Front activity against evictions and for decent unemployment pay, for instance. Many of the socialisation unit members could have been won through experience to a perspective of struggle for socialism outside Parliament and the suffocation of the ALP bureaucracy. But the Communist Party was thrown off course by the orders it received from Stalin in Moscow. By 1928, Stalin's bureaucracy had crushed the remnants of the October Revolution of 1917. It had destroyed all the liberatory elements of that revolution. Liberation for women, for LGBT people, for national minorities, and crucially, for workers' control. And Stalin launched a five-year plan to grow the economy that could succeed only by super-exploiting the workers and the peasants. To cover up this criminal course of action, Stalin puffed up his radical credentials by declaring that the world had entered into a third period of revolution. This was unfortunately wrong, but Stalin added further damage by declaring that social democratic parties like the ALP were holding back the revolution, that they were as bad if not worse than the fascists. They were social fascists. And as a result, the Communist Party derided the socialisation units and their leaders in such terms. And rather than splitting off radicalising workers in their direction through unity and struggle and debate, the Communist Party put up a wall between its members and the membership of the socialisation units. And as the units collapsed in 1933, a mere handful of members switched to the Communist Party. It could have been thousands. 
and that would have had a huge impact on the course of Australian politics as union struggle began to recover in the mid-1930s. So to conclude, we can draw three conclusions from this period that are of immediate use for us today. First, the ALP will always prioritise the interests of capitalism over those of the workers. That doesn't mean we don't welcome Labour governments in place of Liberal governments. And that doesn't mean that we won't work with Labour Party members and branches where possible. But we do so with our eyes wide open and ready to fight reactionary policies coming from Labour. Second, economic crises lead to political radicalisation. Now that can be to the right, and there were fascist groupings organising during the Scullin and Lang period, but it will also be to the left. And socialists need to paint a picture of fundamental social change. We need to be the ones who say a better world is possible. Third, revolutionaries cannot afford to sneer at those who have different views on the left and in the workers' movement. We need to build bridges to those who still have hopes in Labour or the Greens or in the ACTU by joining in united struggles over things that matter to all of us, on the picket lines, over a just transition for climate workers, against nuclear-powered submarines and more. Scullin ruled for the rich, but he also faced a major challenge from the left. Next time, we need to make sure that challenge is victorious. Thank <laughs> you.